Chapters 15 and 16 of The Curved Blades by Carolyn Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 15. Pauline's Purchase Alone, Fleming Stone wrestled with the problem of the giving of that poison. The library at Garden Steps had been turned over to him for a study, and no one entered the room unless summoned. Stone sat at the mahogany table desk, but his eyes rested unseeingly on the beautiful fittings of polished silver and glass. On a memorandum block he wrote down the names of possible and probable suspects. To be sure, he thought, everyone in the house might be deemed possible, as well as some who were not in the house. But each one must be taken into consideration. To begin with, the most important, Miss Stewart. It was possible that she poisoned her aunt, but so improbable as to make it exceedingly unlikely. True, she was heir to half the fortune, but well-bred, well-nurtured young women do not commit crime to inherit their money sooner. Except for that conversation reported by Anita Frayne, there was not a shred of evidence against Miss Stewart. And Stone did not place implicit confidence in that story of the talk behind closed doors. He had discovered that the two girls were not friendly, and he knew Anita capable of making up or coloring a tale to suit herself. Pauline had told him that she was in the hall window seat at one o'clock that night and had seen Anita coming from Miss Carrington's room. Or, to put it more carefully, she had seen her with her hand on the doorknob in the act of closing the door after her. This Pauline had told a stone with an air of such verity and truthfulness that he was fain to believe her. However, in all honesty, he had to admit to himself that Miss Stewart could have given the poison in some secret way had she so desired. The same was true, though, of Miss Frayne, of Haviland, and of the various house-servants. But where could any of them get it? Again there were the Count and Mrs. Frothingham to be considered. In fact, there were too many suspects to decide among without further evidence. "'Any luck?' Stone asked of Hardy, who came in to report. "'No, Mr. Stone. I've raked the drug shops thoroughly, and there's no trace of a sale of aconitin. It's practically impossible to buy such a substance.' I mean, for the ordinary customer. Yet somebody did. I suppose so. But it doesn't limit the field of search to realize that it couldn't have been a servant or either of the young ladies. Why neither of the young ladies? But how could they get it? Why not as well as anyone else? And somebody did. Then somebody stole it. Nobody bought it. I'm positive of that now I've learned how impossible it is to make such a purchase. And how could those girls steal it? I don't know, Hardy, but my point is, why couldn't they steal it if anybody could? You're denying their ability to steal the poison because you don't want to suspect them. And neither do I, but we must look this thing squarely in the face. Somebody managed to get that aconitin and administer it to Miss Carrington secretly, and it is for us to find out who did it, who could do it, in the face of almost insuperable obstacles. But it is futile to say this one or that one could or couldn't do it. Now, since you found no trace of the poison sale, let's start from some other point. Surely this case with its unique circumstances offers many ways to look for evidence. What strikes me most forcibly is the costume of the lady. Not so much the gown. I believe she was fond of elaborate boudoir robes. But the array of jewelry, the glittering scarf, and the snake. Most of all, the snake. That of itself ought to point directly to the true solution, and I believe it does, only we're too blind to see it. 
I'm going to work on that snake clue, and to help, I wish you'd go at once to all the possible shops where it might have been bought. It may not be traceable, and then again it may. And the strange fact of her sitting idly before the mirror when she died. Whoever gave her the poison was there on the spot, must have been, for it's sure enough that she didn't take it herself, according to the doctor's statements. Well, if the murderer was right there with her, and she not only made no outcry, but continued to look smiling and happy, it was surely someone she knew and in whom she had all confidence. Perhaps this person urged her to eat the sandwich. Oh, pshaw, that's all plausible enough. But the snake? That's the bizarre clue that must lead somewhere, and it shall. I'll ferret out the mystery of that paper snake or my name's not stone. Go to it, Hardy. Rake the Japanese shops and department stores, but find out who bought it. It isn't old. I observed it was fresh and new. Those flimsy paper things show handling mighty quickly. Find out who bought the thing, and we've a start in the right direction. Hardy went off on his errand, and Stone went over to have a talk with Mrs. Frothingham. The widow was amiable but non-committal. She was highly incensed at the arrest of the Count, but felt confident he would be liberated in a few days. She replied warily to Stone's questions, but admitted her presence in the house on the fatal evening. "'You see,' she said in a confidential way, "'I was lonely. The Count had gone so often of late to garden steps, and I was never invited, that I think I was a little jealous.' "'Of Miss Carrington?' asked Stone quickly. "'Yes.' said Mrs. Frothingham frankly, and of Miss Stewart and of the Count's intimacy over there. I had never even been in the house. So I went over there and looked in the windows. I saw them playing cards and later strolling about the rooms. The great door stood a little ajar and I cautiously stepped inside. It was vulgarly curious, but it was no crime. As I stood in the hall, I saw someone approaching and stepped up a few steps of the staircase. It was all so beautiful that I looked at the tapestries and decorations. I remember thinking that if anyone challenged me I should tell the truth and say that I came in to look as a neighbor ought to have a right to do. Never mind the ethics of the case, Mrs. Frothingham. Stick to facts. Did you go upstairs? No, indeed. Only up four or five steps, just to the turn of the staircase. But Mr. Ilsley saw you coming down. Only those few steps. He couldn't have seen me coming from the top of the stair, for I didn't go up so far. You spoke of being jealous of Miss Stewart. Why? Because Count Charlier is in love with her. With Miss Stewart? Yes, he was making up to Miss Carrington for her money, but he is really in love with Miss Stewart. Mrs. Frothingham shook her head doggedly, as if determined to tell this, even though it should redound to the Count's discredit, and it did. Then, said Fleming Stone, that adds motive to the theory of the Count's guilt. If he is in love with Miss Stewart, might he not have been tempted to put Miss Carrington out of the way, that Miss Stewart should inherit the fortune and be the bride of his choice? Indeed, yes, that is a possibility, and Fleming Stone saw at last that this woman either suspected the Count's guilt or wished to make it appear so. Again the sudden thought struck him, suppose she was so jealous of the Count's attentions to Miss Carrington, that she went to garden steps with the intent of killing the lady. Suppose she did go upstairs, although she denied it, and put the poison in the sandwich. 
Surely she had opportunity. Surely she would now deny it. Fleming Stone sighed. He hated a case where the principal witnesses were women. One could never tell when they were lying. A man now was much more transparent and his evidence more easily weighed. However, if this woman desired to turn suspicion toward Count Charlier, it was either because she suspected him or was implicated herself. In either case, her word was not worth much, and Stone soon took his leave to hunt a more promising field. Returning to garden steps, he found that Pauline had received a letter from her cousin in Egypt. "'I am afraid,' she said as she handed Stone the letter to read, "'that my cousin Carr will think we are not accomplishing much.' Read the letter, Mr. Stone, and if you say so, I will ask Mr. Loria to come home. Glad to read the letter from this half-heir to the Carrington fortune, Stone took the sheet. It ran. Dear Polly, The awful shock of Aunt Lucy's death leaves me without words to tell you what I feel for you in your dark hours. What can I say in the face of such a horror? I wish I were there with you to help you bear it all for on you comes the brunt of the publicity and all the harrowing details that must be attended to. If you say so, I will return to America at once. But unless I can be of definite assistance or real comfort to you personally, I would rather not go over just now. I'm just starting on a wonderful piece of work here. No less than excavating, but I won't take time to tell of it now. I'll write you about it later if I don't go to you. This is a short note to catch the mail and reach you as soon as possible. Remember, as I write, I have only your first two cables and know nothing of details. I eagerly await your letters. Why don't you follow out your plan of coming over here in February? Leave all business matters in Haviland's hands and get away from the scene of the tragedy. Of course, as I cabled Gray, get the best possible detective experts on the case. Spare no expense and charge all to me. Surely we want to find and punish the slayer of Aunt Lucy, and I repeat, if you, for any reason, want me to, I will come over at once. Cable, and I will take the next steamer. If you don't do this, do write me long letters and tell me everything that is happening. Poor Aunt Lucy! I know your life with her wasn't all a bed of roses, but I know how saddened you are now, and my heart goes out to you. Dear Polly, command me in any way. I am entirely at your service here or there. If you come over here, I advise Haviland to stay there and look after things. I know the bulk of Aunt Lucy's fortune is divided between you and me, and I want Gray to see to all matters connected with my share. When he gets around to it, he can send me some money to further this work I am engaged on here. But let me know if you want me to come to you. With all loving sympathy and affection, Carr. Fleming Stone pondered over this letter. He had felt a certain curiosity concerning this absent cousin who was heir to half the great fortune, and so would have had a possible motive for a crime that would secure his inheritance to him at once. But there was no possible way of connecting a man in Egypt with a deed committed in the victim's boudoir. Vague thoughts of Loria's employing somebody to do the deed for him formed themselves in Stone's mind, but were soon dismissed as untenable. The man Bates could not be a tool of anybody, and beside, he didn't kill the lady. The poison did that. The Count couldn't be a tool of anyone. He was too evidently his own master, and whether guilty or not was entirely on his own initiative. Oh, the whole idea was absurd. The letter itself was sufficient exoneration for Loria. He was absorbed in his research work, and though thoughtful enough of Pauline's wishes, he was apparently not anxious to have his plans over there interrupted. 
he wrote like a good all-round chap and fleming stone could find no peg on which to hang a suspicion in his case a good letter he commented returning it to pauline what's your cousin like in looks a little like me but bigger and darker he's a fine-looking man and a kind-hearted one i shall advise him not to come home for i know how interested he is in his work and he can do no good here can he mr stone frankly miss stewart i don't see how he can i may as well admit to you the case seems to me a most baffling one the assault with the blackjack is of course accounted for but we have made no progress in the matter of discovering the poisoner i feel that the solution of the mystery is closely connected with that paper snake can you give me any idea where the thing could have come from do you think miss carrington bought it herself i am sure she did not returned pauline but her voice and intonation were such that stone turned quickly to look at her she had gone pale and her eyes looked frightened oh no she went on hurriedly aunt lucy would never buy such a thing she hated snakes i know that but she must have gotten it somewhere it is easier to think she put it round her throat herself than to think she let someone else do it why do you say that and now pauline looked angry it is incredible that she should have put that thing round her own neck what could have induced her to do it there seems to be no theory to fit the facts said stone wearily so we must try to get some facts that may suggest a theory you think miss stuart that you saw miss frayne leaving miss carrington's room late that night i know i saw her with her hand on the doorknob returned pauline steadily and just then anita herself burst into the room that is a falsehood she cried and her big blue eyes flashed angrily how could you see me when you were yourself in miss carrington's room this was what stone had wanted to get these two girls at variance and he helped along by saying were you miss stuart certainly not cried pauline you were anita flung back miss carrington was talking to you she said she wished her face was as beautiful as yours to whom else could she have said that surely not to the count one doesn't call a man beautiful and we all know that miss carrington admired your looks and lamented her own lack of beauty all that applies equally well to yourself and pauline gazed steadily at the blonde beauty of anita why wasn't all that speech addressed to your own attractive face and you repeated to incriminate me here was an idea stone wondered if it could be that anita was in the boudoir and to turn suspicion from herself tried to pretend she had heard pauline in there and she said you were fond of pearls went on pauline your admiration for my aunt's pearls is an open secret it was often had anita said how much she preferred the soft lustre of pearls to the dazzling sparkle of other gems and she left you ten thousand dollars in her will continued pauline more as if thinking these things over aloud than as if accusing anita of crime wait miss stuart cried stone what are you doing implying that miss frayne had anything to do with the tragedy i am implying nothing i am trying to see how far the accusations she makes against me will fit her own case you remember she said my aunt proposed to leave my share of the fortune to someone else but carr's share must remain untouched well to whom else could she think of giving my share but to this scheming girl who tried her best to get my portion but did not succeed anita struggled to reply but words would not come 
So furious was she that she could not articulate, she gurgled hysterically when into the room came Haviland and Hardy. Both looked exceedingly grave, and Gray went at once to Pauline and put his hand kindly on her shoulder. Then he suddenly caught sight of Anita in her evident distress, and leaving Pauline he went over to the other and put his arms gently round her. "'What is it, Anita?' he said. "'What has upset you so?' "'Pauline!' was all Anita could say when she was interrupted by Hardy. "'Let me speak first, he said, for he saw there was dissension between the two girls. "'I have made a discovery. At Mr. Stone's directions I have been investigating shops where the paper snake might have been bought, and I have learned that one was bought at Bantine's recently by Miss Stewart.' "'Ah,' said Fleming Stone gravely, "'did you buy one, Miss Stewart?' Pauline hesitated. She was white as chalk and her lips quivered. "'Of course she did,' screamed Anita, greatly excited. "'She did, and she was in there talking to Miss Carrington, just as I said. And she put that thing round her neck to frighten her. And then she gave her the poison, and then she came away and left her to die, all alone by herself. The fiend!' "'There, there, Anita, hush!' And Haviland tried to soothe the frantic exclamation of the girl. Pauline stood waiting in silence. At last, she said, When you remove that ranting woman, I will answer your question, Mr. Stone. You'll answer it now, cried Anita, in my presence and at once. I think you must answer, Miss Stewart, said Stone gently. Did you buy a paper snake? I did, said Pauline, and added in a low tone, A long time ago. This can't be the same one. The date of the sale is about a week before the death of Miss Carrington, went on Hardy, merciless in his statements. For what purpose did you purchase it? asked Stone a little sternly. Pauline now drew herself up proudly. I bought it, she said, in clear distinct tones, because my aunt instructed me to get it for her. There was a silence and then, Oh, come now, Pauline, you can't expect us to swallow that. "'Gray Haviland said with a tolerant smile at her. "'Try again.' "'That's the truth,' said Pauline, but her voice trembled, "'and with a half-stifled exclamation of despair she ran out of the room. "'Stop, Pauline, where are you going?' cried Haviland as he ran after her. "'Don't touch me,' she cried. "'I'm going to cable car to come home. "'He's the only one who can help me. "'You're so wrapped up in Anita that you can't tell truth from falsehood.' Carr will know what to do, and I shall send for him. Wait, Miss Stewart, said Fleming Stone gravely. You may cable Mr. Loria if you choose, but for a few moments I must claim your attention. It is, to my mind, of the greatest importance to learn the details of the purchase of that paper snake, and I must ask you to tell us the circumstances of your aunt's request for it. There is little to tell, said Pauline in a hesitant way. It was one day when I was going over to New York that Aunt Lucy just said casually to get her one of those Japanese paper snakes from Bantine's, and I did. That's enough, cried Anita. Miss Carrington never sent for a snake, never in the world. You'll be saying next she told you to get her some aconitin to poison herself with. 16. The Two Girls Miss Stewart and Fleming Stone's voice, though gentle, had a ring of decision. If I am to go on with this case, I must insist on your entire confidence, and absolute. 
he hesitated over the word truthfulness. The two were alone. After the altercation between Pauline and Anita, Stone had requested the others to leave them, and he determined to get at the truth of this marvelous statement about the purchase of the snake. "'I understand, and you are quite right,' murmured Pauline, her manner quiet, her tone even, but in the dark eyes raised to his, Fleming Stone saw fear, definite, unmistakable fear. "'Then explain, for I am sure you can, why you suppress the fact of your own purchase of that paper snake until forced to admit it.' I was afraid. The beautiful face was of a creamy pallor, and the scarlet lips quivered. But this evident agitation on Miss Stewart's part did not deter Stone from his probing queries. Why were you afraid? Afraid of what? Afraid that if you knew I bought the snake you would think I was in some way connected with—with the crime. But don't you see that to attempt to conceal the fact of your purchase makes any suspicion more imminent? You don't think I would—would— I don't want to think anything about it, Miss Stewart. I want to know, and I want you to tell me all about your aunt's strange request for you to buy a thing she so feared and abhorred. I don't understand it myself, but Aunt Lucy was full of vagaries and would often ask me to buy strange or outlandish things for her. But not of a reptilian nature. No, she had never done such a thing before. Did she give you any reason for the request? make no apology or explanation. No, I was just leaving her when she called me back and said, won't you stop in at some Japanese shop and get me a paper snake? And I exclaimed in surprise at the request. Then she lost her temper and said she supposed she knew what she wanted and for me to get it without further to do. So I did. And when you brought it to her? She merely took it and laid it in a desk drawer without even unwrapping the parcel. I never saw it again till I saw it round her neck. And you do not think she placed it there herself? I am sure she did not. The only reason I can ascribe for her wanting it is that she might have thought her dread of them a foolish whim and determined to accustom herself to the sight of them by means of the harmless toy. That's all I know about that snake, Mr. Stone. But the truth, as I have told it to you, is so strange, so almost unbelievable, that I knew it would only serve to attract suspicion to me, so I denied it. You know Miss Frayne is only waiting to pounce on it as complete evidence of my guilt. You and she are not good friends. We have never been really friendly, though always polite on the surface of things. But she is jealous of me and tried in every possible way to undermine my aunt's faith and trust in me, and even plotted to have me disinherited and my fortune bequeathed to herself. An ambitious plan. She is ambitious. She intends to marry Mr. Haviland, and she intended to have my half of the Carrington money. You don't suspect her of the crime? And Fleming Stone looked up quickly. Suspect is too strong a word, but to me there seems room for grave inquiries. I was in the hall at the time she declares I was in my aunt's room. Wait a moment, Miss Stewart. Isn't this a sort of deadlock? You say you were in the hall. Miss Frayne says you were in the boudoir. Why should I believe one in preference to the other? There was infinite sadness in Pauline's eyes as she looked at her questioner. That is so, she said slowly. Why should you? I have only my unsupported word. "'Nor has Anita any witness. "'But, Mr. Stone, I thought a detective always looked first of all for the motive. "'What reason could I have for—for for killing my aunt?' 
You put it plainly, Miss Stewart, and I will reply in an equally straightforward vein. The first thing we detectives think of is who will benefit from the crime. Naturally, money benefit is first thought of. The greatest money benefit comes to you and your cousin in Egypt. The nature of the crime makes it impossible that he could have committed it. There is, however, a possibility of your own connection with it, so we must question you. But there are others who benefit in a pecuniary way by the death of Miss Carrington, so they too must be questioned. You surely see the justice and the necessity of all this investigation. Oh, yes, and it seems to me also justice that you investigate the story of Miss Frayne. She, too, has only her own unsupported word as to that conversation she relates. May she not have made it all up? She has a witness, Miss Stewart, a credible witness. Mr. Haviland has told me that he saw Miss Frayne at the door of the boudoir at about quarter past one. Gray saw her. He didn't tell me this, Mr. Stone. I hate to speak ill of another woman, but Miss Frayne can really wind Gray Haviland round her finger, and I have no doubt she has persuaded him to give this evidence, whether— Whether it is true or not. Yes, that is what I meant, though I hated to say it. Miss Stewart, it is often hard to tell when a man speaks the truth, but I have no reason to disbelieve Mr. Haviland's statement. He told quite circumstantially of being up and down all night. He was restless and wandered about in several rooms during the small hours. You know he told of seeing the maid on the stairs. And he gives me the impression of a truthful witness who would not lie outright, even at the behest of a woman in whom he is interested. Then they are going to suspect me? Pauline's voice was so full of despair that Fleming Stone caught his breath as he looked at her. Her great eyes were wide with fear, her hands were clenched and her whole body tense with horrified suspense. "'Give me some good reasons why you cannot be suspected,' he cried, eagerly leaning forward in his chair. "'Give me some proof that you were in the hall at that moment, or that you were in your own room, or—' "'That proves, Mr. Stone, that you do suspect me.' Your assumption that I could have been in my own room shows that you do not believe I was in the hall, as I was. Then why didn't Miss Frayne see you there? How do you know she didn't? Why do you accept her words as truth, yet disbelieve mine? Pauline had risen now and stood before him. Her tall slimness, her wonderful grace, and her beautiful angry countenance made an alluring picture. I was not in favor of your taking this case, Mr. Stone, and I am even less so now that you refuse to believe what I say. I shall cable at once for my cousin to return. I do not wish Gray Haviland and Anita Frayne to arrange all this to suit themselves. I am mistress here in Mr. Loria's absence, and if my authority is doubted, I want him here to stand up for me. Just a moment, Miss Stewart. You are not entirely just to me. It is necessary for me to question you, but you must see that your innocence, of which I have no doubt, will be more easily established by a policy of frankness on your part than by futile anger toward Miss Frayne or Mr. Haviland. The incident of the paper snake as explained by you is not necessarily incriminating, and if you will wait a few days before calling your cousin home, I think very likely you will prefer not to do so. I understand that you do not wish him to come home unless he can be of assistance to you. Yes, that is his desire, to stay over there unless I want him. But Mr. Stone, and now the lovely face was almost smiling. If you mean what you said, that you do not doubt my innocence, then I will not send for Mr. Loria. 
I am content to let it all rest in your hands. The girl's beauty now was dazzling. Color showed in her cheeks, her eyes shone, and the curve of her exquisite red lips was almost a smile. Stone looked at her in amazement. He had spoken truly. He had not doubted her innocence, but this sudden elation on her part puzzled him. What did it mean? Only as she meant it to seem that if he believed in her innocence it could be easily proved. Well, he would accept that diagnosis of her attitude, but he would move warily. This case was unlike any other he had ever engaged in, so he must attack it in a different way. And first of all, he must decide which of these two women was speaking the truth. Yet, how could he decide? If Pauline had been in that room when Anita listened at the door, she would of course try to prove that she was elsewhere. But in such a case, why not say she was in her own room? It wasn't possible that she should confess to being in the hall if she were really in the boudoir. That, then, was in Pauline's favor. But the conversation detailed by Anita, that must be further analyzed. These thoughts flew through Stone's quick-moving brain as he stood looking at his beautiful hostess. Puzzling it out, Mr. Stone, and Pauline's smile was a full-fledged one now. Perhaps I can help you. If you'll accept my assistance without doubting my word, I'm sure we can do wonders in a detective way. This was not in Pauline's favor. It was too much like bargaining with him to believe her innocent. Then, too, though all unconscious of it, Stone was influenced by the wonderful charm of the girl. Though her lips were smiling a little, her great dark eyes still held that look of fear, that hunger for protection, that desire for someone on whom to lean. And I won't send for my cousin just yet, she went on. It's too bad to call him home when he's so busy over there. You know, Mr. Stone, that Mr. Loria is a wonderful man. His achievements in excavation have brought him fame and glory. And you mustn't think he's heartless because he doesn't return at once. You know it was all arranged for us to go over there next month, and he had made all sorts of plans for us and for himself. He can't leave his work at a moment's notice unless, as he says, I have need of him. Was he fond of his aunt? inquired Stone casually. He was her idol. To Aunt Lucy the sun rose and set in car. She was perfectly crazy to go on this trip to Egypt in order to be with him. He was fond of her, yes, more so than I was, because she was always kind and good-natured to him, while she was always unpleasant to me. Why was she? I don't know. Well, I suppose I may as well tell you. One reason was because she was always envious of anyone whom she considered better looking than she was herself. This may sound strange to you, Mr. Stone, but it was the key note of my aunt's existence. She adored beauty in every way. Pictures, clothes, everything. But she was so sensitive about her own plainness that a younger or prettier face made her at times irritable and even cruel. She would never engage a servant with any pretensions to good looks. Therefore, as she chose to consider Miss Frayne and myself of comely personal appearance, she was unkind to us both. And Mr. Loria, is he not handsome? Oh, yes, very. But Aunt Lucy liked handsome men. Carr Loria is like a picture. His father was of Italian descent, and Carr has the clear olive skin and dark beauty of that race. Gray Haviland is good-looking, too, but it was only feminine prettiness that stirred up Aunt Lucy's ire. Why did she ever engage such an angel face as Miss Frayne? 
Fleming Stone watched closely for a sign of irritation at this speech and saw it. Pauline's smile faded and she said abruptly, Do you think her so beautiful? She has the perfect blonde fairness usually typified by the celestial white-robed creatures on the old canvases. Yes, Anita is a perfect example of a blonde. Why, she is the daughter of an old schoolmate of my aunt's, and so that's why Aunt Lucy took her. And then she proved such an efficient secretary and such a patient, meek thing to scold that she kept her position. Miss Frayne doesn't seem so extraordinarily meek to me. No, indeed, she's not meek at all. But she always was to Miss Carrington. That, of course, to keep the position which was both easy and lucrative. Easy, that is, except for my aunt's temper. That was vented on poor Anita morning, noon, and night. That, then, might give us a motive for Miss Frayne's desire to be rid of her cruel mistress and to get the inheritance that she knew would come to her at Miss Garrington's death. Pauline shuddered. I can't think of such a thing, Mr. Stone, but if anybody in this house is to be suspected of the awful thing, it can be no one but Anita. She tried, I know, to supplant me in my aunt's affection and to have my inheritance, or part of it, transferred to herself. You know this? Yes. For some time she has been making insinuations and telling my aunt tales about me, untrue ones, that would make Aunt Lucy angry at me. I tell you this, Mr. Stone, because I want you to know Anita Frayne as she really is. There was the ring of sincerity in the tone, there was a look of truth in the big dark eyes, and there was a most appealing expression on the lovely face that gazed into his own, but Fleming Stone turned from the speaker with a polite but decided gesture of dismissal, saying, Please ask Miss Frayne to come here a few moments. End of chapters 15 and 16